This is Tamarindo Podcast. I'm Brenda Gonzalez. And I'm Ana Sheila Victorino. This is the Latinx Podcast where we discuss politics, pop culture, and how to balance it all con calma. Welcome to the show. Surprise, everyone! We're dropping into your feed on our summer break with a special recording of our live show that we did July 23rd. You might remember that we've been telling all of you all about our Tamarindo Live and Workshop. Well, what you're going to hear right now is the live portion of the show where we had guest Gabe Gonzalez, who's a writer and a comedian, and journalist Daniel Hernandez. And since we recorded, we do talk a little bit on this live show about Puerto Rico's Governor Ricardo Rosselló. I'm very happy to report to all of you all if you follow the news, that he has since resigned thanks to the pressure and activism of the people of Puerto Rico. And also, since we recorded, I can also now share that Dana Hernandez is with the New York Times. All right, I won't delay you further. Let's hear our live show. All right, welcome to Tamarindo Live. Energy, energy, energy. Brenda Gonzalez of Tamarindo. And I'm Ana Sheila Victorino. Ana Sheila Victorino. Yes, give it up for Ana Sheila. We want to welcome you to our first live show, and we're going to show you how it's done by just going for it. And first, I'm going to introduce to you all our fantastic guests for today. So we have uh, Daniel Hernandez who is an award-winning journalist, editor, essayist, and documentary host who has worked across the spectrum of news media, most recently as the editor of LA Taco. Yes! Yes! And Daniel is also the author of Down in Delirious in Mexico City, a nonfiction exploration of urban youth subcultures. So give it up for Daniel Hernandez. And we also have with us, all the way from New York City, yeah. Gabe Gonzalez is a Puerto Rican writer and comedian. He's been seen on Comedy Central's Inside and Amy Schumer, MTV's Decoded, and the HBO Latino documentary Habla y Vota. You can catch him right now as the host, a host of Need to Know on MTV News or check him out on Scruff's new quiz show, Hosting, where he writes and hosts weekly shows focused on LGBTQ history and queer culture. So that's who we have. Yeah, Give it thanks up for having me. For Thank you. Thank you so, so much for being here. We're Absolutely. so excited to have you. And since you all got to hear their bios, and maybe if producer Jeff can get the slide up with their bios, you can also see the, slide, the slides with their bios behind me. We're not going to spend too, too much time on getting to know them. You'll hopefully get a flavor of who they are through the conversation. Mm. Instead, what we're going to do, and this is based on listener feedback, you all told us that you like us to talk about topics. That's what you're most interested in. So a topic that resonates with all of us is calling out the call-out culture. How many of you think that sometimes the call-out culture is a little too much? Show of hands. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, a couple right. people call it. <laughs> yeah. Got a yeah, mixed bag here. <laughs> so we agree, sometimes call-out culture is too much, and we're not going to call anybody out for being late. You can go get a beer. <laughs> you can get a beer at any time. This is L.A. It's hard to find a parking spot. It's hard to get here at rush hour. So no hard feelings if you're a little late. And also housekeeping, baños are back there. Beers are over there. Coffee is over there. Pan dulce, too. Pan dulce. Pan dulce. Yes. Yes. So Very good. Plenty of you for you to be comfortable. 
possible. So without further ado, I'm going to ask the first question for our uh, esteemed panel here. So um, my first question is actually for, we're going to start off with Daniel, and of course, then we'll ask Gabe. <laughs> so Daniel, fans of Tamarindo know we need to beat Trump in 2020. So as we know here on the left, and we're trying to pick our primary candidate, do you think that we are on a dangerous path when we call out candidates for their grabby ways or their problematic ancestral <laughs> claims, or are we just exercising our right to be critical? Um, wow, okay, that's a very good question. I mean, I think that, yes, defeating Donald Trump is, for many of us, the number one goal. I think for journalists and podcasters and commentators of every stripe, um, we're all agreed on that. However, I do think that, I mean, at some point, people sort of like can often lose sight of the ultimate goal. It's like we have to keep in mind Donald Trump has three times as much money as the top um, a fundraising Democrat. You know what I'm saying? Like a general election is going to be disgusting and it's going to be uh, a lot of Republican and even Democrat, conservative Democrat money is going to lean towards Donald Trump. Um, being an incumbent president is um, a huge advantage. Very few times you have a one-term president. Donald Trump, for all intent and purposes, will likely be reelected. So what can we do, which we don't want to, right, knock on wood or whatever, and don't want that to happen, but, I mean, I think that in the trenches of sort of where we are as like a non-Trumpian, non-fascist, non-authoritarian kind of identity that I think can actually unify all of us, um, what has to be done, I think, is, is the question, and how are people helping? So I think that, um, you know, calling out Joe Biden for segregationist and or sort of his grabby ways um, is important and necessary. Um, and I think that some of these older candidates need to understand that times have changed and values have changed. Um, however, you know, what are we really trying to achieve and how can we both, like my rubric for everything is how are you helping? How are you helping? And, and, and um, in many different ways, I think that we're all capable of, of, of helping and of uh, preventing a sort of complete consolidation of a fascist government in this country. And, you know, here we are, right? We're all trying to learn and engage and figure out ways to help. Um, and... I think that many of these candidates do have to have a reckoning with their records and with their history and where we are as a country. Um, and again, it's like every tweet that you send or every call out or check that you send, my question always is to people is, how does this help? How does this help? Yeah, you know, and that's that. a question that I think your listeners and your audience, as well as the people here with us today and us here, um, have to confront and ask ourselves on practically every 20 minutes, you know what I'm saying, in this country today. Love that. Okay, how about you, Gabe? What do you think? Are we, are we at risk here for calling out like little tiny details, or should we be mindful of, hey, this guy might actually win, and how can we be helpful? Yeah, see, here's, I think, my feeling on, on the primary. I think if the bar we're setting is beating Trump, 
the bar is set too low, right? Um, because then you're letting a bigot set the terms of engagement and decide the topics that are of importance to the people that um, ultimately want to beat him in an election, right? So while I do agree with Daniel that I think it is of utmost importance to ensure that Donald Trump is not reelected and that if he is, he has a very difficult time um, <laughs> passing any legislation he is uh, in favor of. You know, I also think we need to think about the fact that this is a primary. This is not the general election yet. And we really want to elect the best candidate representing Democrats because that's our only option in a two-party system. You know what I mean? Um, and so I do think that, you know, going back to this idea of how are you helping is very important. And I do think that in a primary, I think what we're calling calling people out is helpful. It shows how a candidate deals with criticism. It shows how they reckon with their track record. And I think it's uh, very interesting that you bring up both Biden and Warren because I think both of them have um, approached uh, challenges or callouts in very different ways. Um, I think to me, Warren represents a candidate that is willing to listen, apologize, and attempt to make amends. Whether those amends are enough is up to the Native American community, right? But I think we see someone who is open to learning. And on the other hand, I think we see a candidate like Joe Biden who becomes very defensive and tries to sort of dance around the issue at hand, which is that even even if you're not sexually assaulting women, um, using them as objects and touching them and kissing them without consent is unacceptable. And, and we are in a time where there is no excuse for that anymore. There never was, right? Um, so I think that now is the moment um, to challenge these candidates on their record, on their beliefs, and really press them because um, you don't want uh, somebody going into a general election not prepared to deal with their track record. Very good points. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. Really, it's kind of like a test for these candidates of, of their leadership and how they're able to respond to different issues that, that arise. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Well, thank you for that. Now yeah, we have you. another question, shifting gears a little bit on the call-out culture. I'm going to start with Gabe now. All right. So, um, as noted in The Atlantic recently, a youth music festival in Detroit retracted its policy of charging white music lovers more money than people of color after a biracial hip-hop artist pulled out and Eventbrite threatened to remove the event from its site. The organizers claim that the price structure would, quote, ensure the most marginalized communities are provided an equitable chance to enjoy the event in their own community. So was it appropriate to call out the organizers of this festival for charging white concert goers a different rate? So here's what I'll say. Um, I think as an event, um, I can understand how the organizers of an event might want to ensure that their event is partaking in what we might call restorative justice. And maybe those ticket prices were a way for them to attempt to equalize access in a community that is uh, almost 80% black. Um, Detroit is almost 80% black. And so I think thinking about how that majority of the community has been historically marginalized and is still um, <laughs> treated as an afterthought, like they're still dealing with, uh, you know what I mean, so many issues in that city, um, I can understand that impetus, right, and that attempt to ensure that people living in poverty and knowing that poverty disproportionately affects people of color, you know, you want to make sure that the community can access things happening in their space. Nobody wants to be left out of something happening in their backyard. Um, that said, while every organization and every group has a right to make that choice, uh, communities are also allowed to speak their mind on these issues, right? Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's my place to speak uh, because I am a white Latino, right? Like on whether or not this is uh, the right or wrong choice, um, but. 
you know, what I do hope comes out of something like this is a conversation, right? Maybe the intentions were good and the execution caused a stir because it didn't quite maybe achieve what the organizers intended, right? And when you are dealing with organizations like Eventbrite, those organizations do reserve the right um, to cancel your event or not sell your tickets um, for a number of reasons, right? So you're dealing with um, a lot of tricky layers here. You're dealing with the community. You're dealing with companies who are accountable to other individuals and uh, might have their own policies uh, that might be at odds with an event that might want to sell tickets on their site. Um, So I think this is a tricky conversation, but I hope that, you know, I'm not too familiar with the story, but I hope that whatever comes out of it is an honest conversation about how we can equalize access for um, marginalized communities in the future. And if maybe it didn't happen the right way this time, it can in the future, right? How can you help? How can you improve on an idea to make it better and equitable to all people? Very cool. How about you, Hector? What do you think? What do you think? Um, well, for me, I mean, Hector, I think... Uh, <laughs> Hector! <laughs> Producer Hector is hiding in the back, right? <laughs> um, thank you. I mean, I think that... You know, discrimination on the basis of color, sex, gender, ethnicity, race, nationality is unacceptable to me in any form. And so I understand exactly that impetus of an Afrofuture fest in a section of Detroit that is all black. But you're kind of preaching to the choir because if there are white people who want to go to this Afro Future Fest, they already have affinity and they already have allegiance and they already want to support. So the aftermath of this incident, I looked into it, I reached, I researched just a little bit. I mean, there was this moment where the organizer said, okay, in order for Eventbrite to not cancel our event, we're going to make the sort of like white tax, you know, uh, optional, you know, pay $20 more if you're white. But like, who determines if you're white? You know what I'm saying? Like, if I would have looked at you, I would have been like, you're Latino or you're Armenian or you're Italian or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, or you're whatever, whatever it is you are. It's like, the thing about Latinos is that the spectrum is so massive and so wide. And you go to any Latin American country today and you will see uh, Korean immigrants, you will see uh, Jamaican and Haitian immigrants. There's a movement of people in Latin America that has been constant for the past 500, 600 years. And so, for this group to sort of like attempt that sort of restorative gesture of saying we're going to charge white people more to come into this Afrofuture Fest and, 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 and saying, you know, black people or people of color are going to be charged less or this other price, I think sort of in a way takes the structures of capitalism and of all of these fucked up things that we kind of hate at the end of the day and sort of tries to apply it as a sort of a lesson or as a punishment <laughs> or as a kind of like equalizing gesture for the past 400 years of slavery in the United States. I don't know if that's an effective enough tool or I don't know what exactly that gesture is trying to achieve in the here and now and in the parameters of that community. And so I would just say like the bottom line is treat everyone how you want to be treated. You know what I'm saying? And so like if you're trying to sell tickets to an event and you say half the people who come to this event, we're going to charge them more and half then. Well, it's like I, I just don't know how that helps to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. So 
discussion around the call-out culture, a lot of it is like calling out versus calling in. And I think one of the observations that we can make that a lot of times when we're calling out, we tend to be doing it in such a way that we're more punishing or, or shaming. Um, rather than actually educating or helping, as you mentioned. So kind of expanding on what you touch, touched on a little bit, Daniel. Um, what's your personal, uh, expand a little bit on your personal barometer on how you decide when you want to, with the platform that you have, call someone out and how you decide to, to do it. I think calling out is very effective. These platforms, Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, allow us to have an equal footing, I guess, in sort of the, uh, the um, marketplace of ideas that is the internet. For me, sort of, I guess where I draw the line is always like, are we rewriting history here? And for example, right now, there's a big movement to like not teach kids about the missions or like not make, if you grew up in California, you remember the missions. It's like you had to make a model of the missions using sugar cubes <laughs> and you like understand that the missions were essentially Spanish colonialism coming up from Mexico and sort of establishing these um, pinpoints in California. And I was just in San Luis Obispo like literally six hours ago and like yesterday I was in Mission San Miguel and I'm, and I was thinking, it's like, if we reach the apex point of this kind of call-out culture, we would erase the missions, right? But it's like, if we would do that, do we erase our history? And do we erase the understanding of what colonialism did and the way that here in California, we were kind of colonized twice in the sense that like, we had the sort of the British Anglo kind of American expansionist manifest destiny kind of move towards us, but we would also have kind of the Spanish empire moving up north as well, and we're right here. And I think that get, that also gives us a very privileged position to kind of understand the formation of our country, and I, and I would be very form, um, supportive of kind of a rewriting or recalibrating of our understanding of West Coast and American Southwest history. Um, however, I want kids to keep learning about the missions. You know what I'm saying? Like, and if it means we can extract having to make the mission model and um, if we can focus on the way that indigenous people were exploited, were abused, were converted against their will, et cetera, et cetera, but that's our history. And so let's understand it and let's not forget it. Case in point, very quickly, I wrote an article for LA Weekly and it was about um, Barbara Carrasco. Barbara, Barbara Carrasco, Barbara Carrasco was a massive, you know, is an incredible artist, muralist. And my editors were like, you know, I said, Chicana muralist is, you know, exhibiting her mural at Union Station. Remember that from last year, a couple years ago? Um, and the editor of the LA Weekly kept changing it to Chicanex. Chicanex, 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 Chicanex. And I'm like, that is erasing the history of, of uh, Chicanex is a term that was probably invented or first used in 2014, 2015, let's be honest. So if we're gonna start using Chicanex and calling Bar Barbara Carrasco would never identify as Chicanex. She doesn't even, she would laugh at that term. And so I understand sort of, you know, that's a whole another range of language and we can talk about that separately, but like we cannot erase our history. Barbara is Chicana, you know what I'm saying? And like, I think Chicanas and Chicanos um, don't want to be erased in this effort to sort of like equalize language and sort of like make it gender um, um, uh, uh, neutral in the sense. And I think that we can, okay, things that are Chicanx are starting when that term was coined don't rewrite and erase everything that came before. You know what I'm saying? And that's where I stand. But again, I'm very malleable and I'm always open to hearing 
um, other opinions and other ways of understanding that kind. But I think the line that I draw is let's not erase what we have no matter how ugly it is. Right. It's like our history is problematic, but that doesn't mean it's not our history and not mm -hmm. something that we should remember. Exactly. Right. That makes sense. How about you, Gabe? Totally, yeah. Um, so I think there are, you know, I think um, we talked about this marketplace of ideas, right? The internet. And I think in an ideal world, the internet sort of like democratizes access to information and fosters productive discourse. And that is not always the case on places like Twitter, right? Um, so I think there are, to me, examples of productive calling out and examples of sort of bandwagoning where people see something trending. And I think the difference there is learning about uh, the context and the story behind it and also kind of understanding what you want out of it, right? If you're calling somebody out to just sort of score points mm -hmm. and there's nothing they can do and there's nothing you want them to learn, then like what's the next step? What have you achieved, right? Um, so I think um, I have kind of two examples. One that I think is a, an example of a, of a problematic call out or a call out that could have been done better and a call out that I think was necessary um, and that I think does offer access to um, a voice or um, uh, the ability to amplify your voice. Um, so I think the first one is I want to go back to I think um, Tina Fey made an appearance on SNL shortly after uh, the Trump election and she showed up playing a white lady in like a sweatpant who was like I'm not voting at the next election. I'm just eating cake. Like I can't handle this anymore. Right? And a lot of people were like well that's ignorant and privileged of her. And I was like well yeah a lot of white comedians can be ignorant and privileged but to me this was clearly satire. It was satirizing the type of white woman that would be like oh well I hate it. I'm just staying home and eating cake, right? And then people were like, well, why hasn't she said anything about white women voting for Trump? And I was like, well, she did. <laughs> in April, after the November election, um, she was at an event and she was asked about it. And she was like, I think white women and white people in general need to be held to account um, for voting for Trump or abstaining um, because they do have the privilege of feeling safe under an administration like this one, right? So I think that's an example of like people just wanting to jump on, on something. And then like I weighed in on this and I got called out and I got called a white supremacist. And I was like, whoa, all right, I'm going to take like a three day break from Twitter because this is a lot. Right. And like, I'm not trying to cape for some white lady. Like, I'm not out here being like, I'm Tina Fey's greatest stand. Like, she doesn't pay me. You know what I mean? Like, and she probably has said some problematic stuff. But I think that was an instance of like people seeing something trending and wanting to be the voice or the face associated with like this, this, um, I don't know, pushback, kind of. Because I think there is a little bit of cachet in that on the internet, right? Sure, yeah. And so, um, you know, let's look at another example, right? Kind of going back to what Daniel said. Um, calling out, especially um, using a platform like the internet or in places that might not be appropriate to call out, is sometimes a way to equalize the voice of the marginalized with the voice of the powerful. So an example I like to use is Jenny Set Gutierrez, um, who is a trans immigrant living in the United States and took a moment when Obama was giving a speech uh, during mm -hmm. Pride, uh, or maybe it was, uh, I think he was talking about gay marriage, she interrupted him and started chanting um, for the Obama administration to release trans women from immigrant detention, which I think now is something we can all agree <laughs> is uh, needed, and I think something that it's something that we conveniently ignored because we had an administration we quote-unquote trusted in the White House, right? And we know now, looking at the numbers, that that administration deported more immigrants than any other administration in history. Right. There may be time for this one to catch up. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know. But um, that was a problem. And a lot of people are like, that was not the right moment to call out. Um, how dare you interrupt a queer event? Um, this is not an issue. You're ignoring everything that this president has done for us, right? But when you are an individual like Jenny Set was at that moment, 
right? When you are an activist and an organizer who doesn't have that platform, that access, that power, who isn't getting booked on morning talk shows the way she is now, right? Um, How else can you express that rage and that urgency than by interrupting the status quo, by calling somebody out when it is quote-unquote inappropriate? Um, And I think in that instance, there was an organization that had an actionable result they wanted out of that calling out as well. Um, And so I think, you know, that is productive. And I think sometimes we might say that calling something out in the moment is wrong or wasn't appropriate. And sometimes hindsight is 2020. You know what I mean? I think if you ask the majority of people today, particularly white cis gay men who are critical of Jenny Set early on, they would probably agree, right? Um, And so I think it really just does depend on the context. And for me, I think the most important things to consider are how much of the story do you know? Are you actually invested in it? Or are you just calling out for the sake of scoring points? And what do you want out of this call out, right? Because I think there are opportunities to call people in, to call in allies and realize that calling them out has made them learn something. And then we have the opportunity to educate. That's not necessarily a burden that I think everybody should have to carry, especially as uh, marginalized individuals. But um, I think there are opportunities and it's, uh, it's a mistake not to take advantage of them. Very cool. I love that. We're using our, yes, our little matraca. <laughs> so as we've just talked about, there are times where it really is justified to, to call things out. And a tradition of tamarindo is actually to put some put things in la basura. So this can be a person, thing, concept, idea. So we'd like to know what, let's start with Daniel, what you'd like to put ah. in la basura. Ay, no sé. <laughs> el mundo entero. <laughs> it can be fun or it can be serious, whatever you want. Um, I guess maybe we could throw in the basura the notion that um, questions of class are always inextricably delinked from questions of race. And I think that I'm really ready to always find that intersection and always focus on that. You know, um, again, my parents taught me to always treat people like you want to be treated. So if I go to a bar in a little town here in California and I'm talking in the San Gabriel Valley or in the Inland Empire or in Orange County, And if I cannot find a point of connection with the person sitting next to me, then I'm not, I've failed as an American citizen. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I failed as a resident of this country, as a citizen in the sort of classical sense of the word. Because I think many undocumented people are more citizen-like than many sort of card-carrying citizens. And so, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I really feel that citizenship is an idea and is a notion and is something that we care in our, carry in our hearts. And, and um, those of us who have the privilege of being card-carrying citizens are, um, have even more of an onus to really inhabit that and be smart and effective about how we wield that. And so um, I'm down to find points of connection with working-class white people because I'm around working class brown people and I'm around working class black people. You know what I'm saying? And I'm around this milieu of an urban center, which is always going to be that kind of battleground and that kind of territory where we're constantly um, navigating these questions and these issues. So I'm really like, if we can make those points of connection, no, we don't have to convince Trump voters to love us or to love us or to not be racist or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's like, 
Dude, in 2008, white, working class, rural, sorry, like West Virginia voters voted for Barack Obama and were calling him the N-word as they were casting votes for him. And I remember that to me was the most important quote. And the New York Times put it in the newspaper that they sent a reporter and walked up to a coal town somewhere in fucked up West Virginia. And the people were like, and the quote was literally like, oh, honey, are we going to vote for the... And the person in the back of the living room said yes, because they were tired of George W. Bush. Like, those voters, we don't have to excuse their racism. And we don't have to conceptualize it, even understand it, or even make excuses for it, literally. But where are we going as a country? And again, how are we helping? And in what ways can we effectively make those bridges? Not necessarily to convince people to not be racist, but to like find points of fucking connection. You know what I'm saying? I'm sorry, but like really like understand you know, the pressures and the anxieties that everyday people feel. And um, I always turn to my friends and to my network and to my people and, 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 and people around me. And I'm always like, you know, like a lot of American voters, liberal voters who have jobs and, you know, have are in gamely employed and own homes, they, they don't really see the pressures that working class voters are really, 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 really feeling. You know what I'm saying? The closest person that I call is, is someone, you know, who works at a store and is making minimum wage and is not going to get fi- hired for more hours because their company will not give them uh, health insurance. You know what I'm saying? And that person is like, you know, I was with Bernie in 2016. I'm kind of with Bernie now, but no pollster is ever going to call me. Mm. And you know what I'm saying? I'm never really going to be able to give more than $20 for whatever candidate I actually like. Is that person and is that mass of people, are we really going to embrace them and maybe let them lead? And let those of us who are educated and who have jobs and who are making more than 80K or more than 100K or are able to pay our rent, uh, uh, maybe it's time to let them lead. Because maybe we actually haven't done a good job in the past 20 years being liberal Democrats. And maybe we have actually let the inequality get to an extreme and insane level. And maybe we need to let the working class people lead the way and let their impulses and let their um, questions and their issues and their real feels uh, guide us. And I think a smart, smart educated person knows when the time is to let the working class lead and to let the working class impulse and that groundswell really um, take over because I I feel zero nostalgia for Barack Obama's presidency. I'm sorry. And zero nostalgia for Joe Biden and zero nostalgia for any Democratic senator or congressman who allowed the formation of detention centers, Mm -hmm. which happened precisely under the Obama presidency. And not only that, but the bailout of Wall Street, like these are not radical ideas. And yet we still sort of, we allow liberal Democrats to sort of like, and kind of conservative centrist Democrats to really guide that discussion and guide the parameters of that because they control the media um and it's time to like people are ready to rage people are ready to pick up arms you know what i'm saying so like (laughs) we have to understand where that sensation is and release it yeah thanks thanks for that 
What about, uh, How about you, Gabe? Yeah. Um, para la basura, para la basura, para la basura. There's a big basura back there. So. Yeah, I just, I got a tiny one because it's a small man I'm putting in la basura. <laughs> now, I'm going to put Ricardo Rosselló in la basura right now. I know, we gotta, I thank you, yes, thank you. I hope that was a yes, umbrindi. Yes, yes. Yeah, 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 right. Could you explain to yeah. us that from your point of view? Yeah. I just okay. want to hear yeah. that tell for us, sure. Us, we got a Puerto so, Rican in the house. For those yeah. who do not know, Ricardo Rosselló is currently, and hopefully not for much longer, um, the governor of Puerto Rico. Uh, Rosselló was elected a little bit ago. I'm pretty sure he's in his second, maybe uh, almost third year in office. And during that time, there have been a number of frustrations that Puerto Ricans have had with him. The way he dealt with Hurricane Maria, um, the way he denied the number of dead that every Puerto Rican citizen knew was larger than the two-digit number he gave all standing next to Trump. Um, the fact that he sort of uh, kowtowed to the federal government when they didn't want to send enough federal aid, and it took the Puerto Rican people and celebrities protesting, you know what I mean? And so like, there's been a lot of resentment building up since early on in his administration. And what happened very recently was sort of this one-two punch. Um, so on one day, the FBI arrested several uh, people who were officials in his administration or had been officials in his administration. Among them, um, Kelleher, who was the uh, head of, or I think the Secretary of Education in Puerto Rico. She was arrested for fraud. Um, and she had been slashing funding for schools and closing schools all around the island while giving contracts to private companies that were later found out to be fraudulent, or according to the FBI's claims, are fraudulent. So allegedly fraudulent, even though every Puerto Rican can tell you <laughs> there's some shady shit happening, right? So this happens, and then like the next day, right, Rosselló is like, I'm not connected to this. This did happen under my administration, under La Junta Federal, this fiscal board that is appointed by the federal government and decides where Puerto Rico's money goes and how we're going to approach austerity, which is already messed up, and that's a whole nother basura moment yeah. we can talk about, right? So the next day, a series of chats come out where, with uh, Rosselló as the administrator and a bunch of his closest advisors and appointees in his administration. And it was 889 pages of total disrespect for the Puerto Rican community and every single person that has worked to make Puerto Rico better. Um, he called women that had crossed his path putas when he didn't like them, women politicians. He made fun of Ricky Martin, which is something you do not do when you're Puerto Rican. Ricky Martin is quite literally a national treasure. Um, there were people on that chat making fun of how many people died after Hurricane Maria and the bodies piling up. Um, Ricardo Rosselló joked about taking taxpayer-funded trips to avoid controversy on the island, so would use his official capacity as governor to just leave when he didn't want to deal with things. Like, the amount of stuff that's in, it's almost too much to list. It sounds too heavy-handed, you know what I mean? It's like, really? Yes, really. Like, 889 pages of, like, absolute disrespect. Um, he is fully unfit to be governor. Almost everybody in that chat has stepped down. Um, his press secretary stepped down. His own party um, asked him to resign as the head of the party, and he announced he wouldn't be running again in 2020, but that's not what Puerto Ricans are protesting for. Puerto Ricans want him out, and they want him out now, and he's held on for far too long, and I'm honestly fed up. His father was also a corrupt governor, so like, just like this nepotism, and the way he embodies the political elite of Puerto Rico, right? Because it's like, like we talked about, you go to any Latin American country, any place, and there's, a, there's class difference, there is racial difference there, right? And and for too long, I think the political elite in Puerto Rico have gotten away with this corruption because it's, you know what I mean? They're like, oh, well, we're the chosen ones. We're the only ones with access to this power and um, this ability, right? And so it is this idea that the most educated and the wealthiest should be the ones to lead and represent Puerto Rico on the national scale. And all we've gotten from that is corruption after corruption after corruption. 
And so after Ricky's out, La Junta is next. And maybe uh, I can come back and talk to you all about La Junta and why it should also go on La Basura. Yay. But I'm going to leave it there. So many basuras. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, examples. guys. Now, to balance it all out and to close it all out, we would love to know what are, what are you going to give a matraca to? What is a shout out? And, and if you could also, in doing so, tell us a cool project that you're doing now that you're most excited about. Mm-hmm. What is the, the project that you're leading that gets a matraca? And then Manashela will have the matraca ready to play it. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we uh, talk, start with um, you, Daniel? What do you, okay. what do you got cooking? I mean, I would love to give a matraca to LA Taco and to the LA Taco community and family. I mean, we really Yay, thank LA you Taco. guys. Like, we did it. And I really say, and I mean we, like we really were able as a community, as a community of journalists, and as a community of chroniclers and of eaters and of chefs um, reminded Los Angeles and I think the nation and hopefully the world that we have something cooking here. You know, we're a big, big, big city. One of the biggest cities in the United States, second biggest city in the United States, one of the biggest cities in the world, second most Mexican city in the world after Mexico City. Like, you can't fuck with LA. Like, okay. we will, and, and right now we are in our renaissance and we are in our moment, and venues like LA Taco, and I would say that LA Taco is now the leader in this space, and hopefully places like you, ladies, like Tamarindo Podcast. And, yeah, shout out to and, that. And, yeah, it's like, we have yeah. to open up these spaces and and um, really claim them and be leaders. One of the things I always said was LA Taco was not a Latino website. We're not Remezcla. We're not Me Too. We're an LA website. An LA website, by default, is a Latino one, but it's also a black website. It's also an Asian website. It's also essentially like an Anglo website as well. It's like, this is who we are as a city and as a place, and we need to embrace that. And But I think as brown folks, we can be leaders, and we could lead the way in the 21st century. So I'm so glad. Um, you know, Thank you for having me right now as I'm transitioning away from LA Taco. Javier Cabral is our new editor, and, and I just want to give a shout out to him and to everyone else. Ali Taco, Eric Galindo, Lex, the publisher Alex, and all of our supporters and, and, and our gente here in Los Angeles and in California and really all over the country because people have been writing us from all over the country saying how much they appreciate Ali Taco. They wish they had an Ali Taco in their city, whether it's Detroit or Dallas or Houston or even New York. We actually do own nytaco.com and hey. we own a bunch of other yeah. They got so maybe one day if we get like <laughs> millions and millions of dollars, we'll be a network. And I'm not, I don't want to give up hope. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm going to go and I'm going to work for a traditional publication. I can't say yet what that is. When this podcast is published, maybe it will be known. But I think the broader point is <laughs> we need to be in all of these spaces. We need to be on KCRW, on KPCC, on NPR, and all things considered, on MSNBC, on CNN. We even should get our asses on Fox News. Like We need to be everywhere. They need to see us. And they need to understand that we are here and that we are as American, and actually maybe even more so, if we were to think really historically and really cosmically, mm-hmm. um, and, and 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 just be sort of responsible with this platforms that we are all building. I think all of us here. Love that. Matraca, matraca, matraca. Yes. 
And how about you, Gabe? What gets your matraca? What are you working on? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to split up my matraca and what I'm working on because my matraca is a little vague, right? Um, I want to give matraca to every news organization that has given uh, Puerto Rican reporters space to cover what is happening on the island authentically. Yes. Um, and I want to give a particular shout out to so many uh, women reporters from Puerto Rico who are either living on the island or identify as part of the diaspora for like really, really stepping up. I think if we look at some of the best coverage, the most nuanced coverage, the people that have been telling us what to look out for and who to listen to from the get have been Puerto Rican women and I'm just so grateful and there are like way too many lists and if I list them all like I'm going to miss one and I don't want to do that um, but I've shouted out a lot of them on Twitter and I also you know I want to shout out Scruff and MTV News for also giving me an opportunity to talk about this stuff like I host a quiz show on a gay hookup app and they let me talk about Puerto Rico you know what I'm saying so it's like <laughs> if I can reach some dude like in his boxer briefs who's like kind of horny and apolitical <laughs> and get him to like know who he got is and why that motherfucker needs to go like that's amazing right and uh, same with MTV News I, I just joined them freelance as like a, a co-host in the rotation and one of the first things they let me work on was a script about Puerto Rico um, and I got to shout out so many journalists that I, I really admire and appreciate in that video too so um, I just think it's an amazing moment right now particularly for me as a Puerto Rican to you know see people really step up and demand a seat at the table right demand a seat at the table whether you're calling out a news organization on Twitter and being like yo why don't you have any Puerto Ricans on your panel about Puerto Rico or you're calling out and you're being like yo why don't you have any undocumented uh, immigrants on your panel about living as an undocumented immigrant you know what I'm saying like we need to demand this stuff and so um, I do want to thank those people in power who have uh, uh, let us take that seat at the table and who have collaborated with us and also no one to step down and let us lead right um, in terms of exciting projects um, I talked about a couple places I'm uh, working at right now I am working on a pilot with my little brother which is pretty exciting it's called Los Blancos and it is very much a um, a rumination on the privilege and sometimes ignorance that comes with being a white Latino especially one of the diaspora so it's very much based on our experience growing up in Florida and um, you know how I think Latinos are forced to anglicize themselves to get ahead right or they are at least convinced that they need to um, to assimilate to fit in to have a, a voice or a seat at the table and um, I have just spent so much of my time after I got out of that community pushing against that notion and learning so much more about myself and my culture and so I'm really excited to finish this project and hopefully y'all will be hearing more about it soon shout out to my brother Marcos Gonzalez who lives here in LA um, he's also my um, my free Airbnb while I'm here excellent so you know Airbnb loving brother. it yeah. awesome well thank you so much let's give them a big round of applause Woo! short break so you can refill your beers and Woo. we can have our fabulous guests head out with some goodies and Thanks, thank guys. you thank, thank you. you let's give a big thank you so much guys thank you all so much appreciate it awesome that was okay. a ton of fun. oh my god I'm so sorry Tamarindo Podcast is independently produced by Brenda Gonzalez and Ana Sheila Victorino with sound engineering by Jeff DeVoe. If you were a fan of the show, we hope you will rate and review Tamarindo on Apple Podcasts or share Tamarindo Podcast with a friend. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us on the gram at Tamarindo Podcast or on Twitter at TamarindoCast and find us at TamarindoPodcast.com.
cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI, FPEI, 220099 